This is Author and Finisher, Episode 3, From the Snows of Canada to the Swamps of Louisiana, the French Empire in North America. A pillar of the French Empire in North America was European fashion in hats. By the late 14th century, Europeans were wearing hats made from the fur of beavers, an animal that lived along the Baltic Sea. The hat-making process began by turning beaver hair into felt. Europeans found that no fur made better felt than beaver. Beaver felt resisted tearing and kept out water. Hatters found it easy to bend, but finished beaver hats were hard to crush. By the late 16th century, it had become hip to wear beaver. One variety of beaver hat was the tricorn, popular in the 18th century and often associated with the era of the American Revolution. No type of hat cost more than beaver, but splurging yielded status. Beaver hats were the choice of the wealthy and educated. Eventually, the beaver boom began making the unfortunate animals scarce. Fortunately for the fashionable, North America offered France a new source of these well-attired creatures, plus access to plenty of other valuable wildlife. In the late 16th century, the French began coming to the coast of Newfoundland to harvest sea creatures, fish, seals, and whales. At the same time, they began trading for furs with the natives. Among the first fur traders were the fishermen. They started encountering Indians when they came on shore to do tasks like drawing fresh water or collecting the oil from the carcasses of their whale kills. They found the pelts offered by these Indians particularly appealing because animals needed luxuriant fur to keep warm so far north. Early French fur traders also ventured down the St. Lawrence River Valley, and in the early 17th century they started working around the Great Lakes, a region they began to call the Upper Country. The French peddled alcohol, beads, and kettles, as well as iron tools including knives, arrowheads, axes, and hoes. Indians found these tools much superior to their old stone tools, and they peddled guns and ammunition. In return, Indians gave furs that they hunted and processed. Their wares included marten, lynx, otter, fox, and, most valuable of all, beaver. But the true base of French power was deeper than beaver. Upholding not only the fur trade, but all France's other ambitions in North America was its strong ties with Indians. France developed a great empire in North America by adept Indian diplomacy, but it could not overcome a dangerous flaw in its power. In addition to trading for beaver and other furs, the French came to North America to win Indians to Christianity, contain rival European powers, and found farms. Settlers did not provide much force to the French presence because few French found North America an appealing place to go. Their reluctance cost France a key source of stability for its empire and often meant France could not force Indians into compliance. But the French responded with measures that made their empire strong. They developed partnerships with many Indian tribes in which each side made concessions to achieve their aims. France assembled more Indian allies than any other European power on the continent. In the 17th and 18th centuries, Settlers, soldiers, officials, fur traders, priests, and members of religious orders, especially the Jesuits, made France the dominant European power in a vast, crescent-shaped territory, stretching from Canada, through the Midwest, and down the Mississippi River to Louisiana. For a hundred years, 
no European power influenced more of North America than the French. In addition to fishing and fur trading, early French initiatives in North America also included settling Canada. They found it a difficult place to gain a foothold. The first settlements failed. In the 1540s, cold winters derailed one settlement, an ominous portent for the future. Finally, in 1604, France made a colony stick when it established New France, which eventually included what is now eastern Canada and much of the Midwestern United States. In 1608, the French founded Quebec on a strategic spot along the St. Lawrence River, where the channel narrows beneath a towering bank. At first, the Company of New France administered the colony. The company did little to increase the population. Focused on the fur trade, it had no interest in bringing masses of traders over because they would compete for furs and thereby drive up prices. The cost of a small population was that it left Canada's defenses weak. In 1629, English raiders took advantage by destroying Quebec. French officials tried to prevent a repetition of the debacle by requiring the company to increase the population. The company's reforms led to the development of agriculture in Canada. It began granting land to wealthy men called seigneurs in exchange for bringing settlers over. Seigneurs rented access to their estates to farmers called habitants who grew wheat and tended livestock. Habitants had plenty of reasons not to come. Canada had a terrible reputation. This image overstated the hardships of Canadian life, but not by much. Detractors said Canada was a haven for criminals. This was false, but other features of Canada's bad name were based on reality. The land had to be cleared of trees to be farmed. Swarms of mosquitoes and black flies blighted the summer. High-latitude survival was a challenge. Winters were cold. The window between the first and last freezes was narrow. Sometimes early frosts killed grain before harvest. Tropical crops like sugar were out of the question. Even if one did have a good harvest, the expense of shipping to France or to France's colonies in the Caribbean was high. France's Caribbean colonies and the availability of jobs in neighboring Spain, home to 200,000 French by 1669, also diverted colonists from Canada. During the 17th century, compared with poor people in England, poor French had little reason to think that going to the trouble of venturing far from home would yield a better life. The French poor were spared a crisis faced by many poor in England, loss of access to land. Unlike England, France was rapidly building up its army, from 20,000 in 1661 to 300,000 in 1710, providing a domestic outlook for people seeking a new career. French were far less likely to go to North America without a subsidy than the English. By 1663, Canada had only 3,500 settlers. England's settlements in New England, Virginia, and Maryland already had 58,000 settlers. Perturbed by New France's inability to keep up, the French crown took control of the colony in 1663. It tried to beef up the population by paying the travel costs of whoever would go. The policy increased the population, but also backfired. It was expensive and often a waste of money. Many colonists went home eventually. French settlers were more likely to return to Europe than those who went to the English colonies. France gave up the subsidies after a decade, 
leading to a slowdown in immigration. By 1700, Canada's settlers were poor and demographically lopsided. 88% of the immigrants were male. They tended to be laborers, artisans, and soldiers. Many of these immigrants got to Canada by finding a seigneur, habitant, merchant, or priest who would pay their way, then putting in three years as a dock worker, builder, or land clearer to settle accounts. Although only a few French wanted to try life in Canada, they went in large enough numbers that they began to remake the region's population. By the mid-18th century, Canadian settlers outnumbered the Indians in the St. Lawrence Valley. Despite all the obstacles, French who refused to be deterred by all the reasons to steer clear of Canada became wealthier than those who stayed home. In Canada, they could rent 100 acres, something few could hope to achieve in France. In France, to ensure sporting opportunities for aristocrats, peasants could neither hunt nor fish. These restrictions did not hamper Canadians. Taxes and rents were lower in Canada. Canadians could afford better diets, allowing them to enjoy more meat and white bread. More plentiful firewood reduced the chill they endured in the winter, indoors anyway. Back in France, few peasants owned horses, making them a sign of high status. In Canada, the majority of habitants could afford them. Life was good for content habitants, but not for those with aspirations. Habitants all tended to have about the same amount of wealth, because there was little incentive to improve oneself. Labor was hard to get, the economy was small, government regulations were intrusive, and crops were mainly sold locally because long-distance shipping was expensive. The French colonies offered little social mobility. Education was only available in large towns like Quebec, one reason fewer than 25% of the settlers could read. Being a member of the aristocracy was even more advantageous in the French colonies than in the English or Spanish colonies. Unlike in those colonies, the majority of French civilian and military officials were members of the aristocracy. Public policy bolstered the seigneurs as a means of ensuring the people respected authority. Seigneurs were forbidden to do anything that could diminish their wealth or status. They could not perform manual labor or found businesses. The widows of aristocrats received pensions to keep them out of poverty. Seigneurs also could not sell or divide their lands, a policy that prevented the rise of entrepreneurs who made their livings on land investment. The French colonies were not havens for those seeking freedom. The state influenced the French colonies far more than the English colonies. The military played a significant role because the small population of the French colonies made them vulnerable. Because its colonies were better populated, Britain stationed fewer troops there. The French monarchy exerted great power, largely a result of the efforts of the ambitious King Louis XIV, the Sun King, who reigned from 1643 to 1715 to enhance his position. A large army kept the people in line and paying high taxes, and provided a way to win over the nobility, who served as its officers. Government did more to protect the people in the French colonies than in the English colonies, which preferred to leave people's fate to the market. For example, French authorities imposed price controls. The people also could not restrain the government by their votes in the French colonies. The French crown designed New France's government to be under three authorities, the governor-general, the intendant, and a bishop. The governor-general led the military, 
the intendant controlled spending and picked the militia officers, and the bishop headed the church. Their competition for power was meant to prevent anyone from growing too powerful, but it also wasted resources and caused indecisiveness. The three executive leaders, along with the attorney general and five to seven seigneurs, sat on the council, which made laws, recommended policy to the governor general, and acted as the highest court in the land. The governor general and intendant sometimes allowed the people to air their grievances to them, but were not required to respond with reforms. Counties and towns did not have their own governments. France's colonies did not offer religious freedom. To maintain order, the monarchy mandated that everyone submit to the Roman Catholic Church. Officials enforced Catholic ordinances, such as a ban on eating meat other than fish during Lent. Despite, or maybe because of, these policies, the majority of French colonists were only nominal Catholics. The French advanced along the waterways. Their path into North America was the St. Lawrence River, which led them to what they called the Upper Country. In the 1650s, the French began founding trading posts there, including one at Michilimackinac, where Lakes Superior, Huron, and Michigan meet. By the 1660s, the French were trading at the western tip of Lake Superior, and by the 1680s, their posts had expanded well into what the French called the Illinois country, the region from Michigan to Missouri. In the early 18th century, the French solidified their hold on the region by building forts on Mackinac Island near Michilimackinac and at the present locations of Detroit and Miami, Ohio. They also occupied some of the territory along what is now the Illinois-Missouri border. There, settlers farmed, traded with Indians and French colonies farther south, and mined lead. Far fewer French settled the upper country than in Canada, leaving Indians by far the majority population. Leading south out of the upper country, though not connected directly to the Great Lakes, is the Mississippi River. By the 1670s, French missionaries and traders headed south down this great thoroughfare. In 1673, Jesuit Jacques Marquette and frontiersman Louis Joliet traveled from the upper peninsula of what is now Michigan to the Wisconsin River, down it to the Mississippi, and then down the Mississippi to where it meets the Arkansas River. There they stopped to avoid trouble with the Spanish, but they had gone far enough to ascertain that the Mississippi flowed into the Gulf of Mexico, not the Pacific Ocean. In 1682, a party of French and Indians under René Robert Calvelier, Sieur de la Salle, took the same route and in honor of Louis XIV gave the name Louisiana to the region along the southern Mississippi. In 1684, La Salle returned to the region, this time through the Gulf of Mexico, with permission from the king to found a settlement along the southern Mississippi. His party never could find the Mississippi from this direction, but in 1685 they founded Fort St. Louis on the south coast of Texas. Two years later, the settlement moved north to the Trinity River, there, an Indian attack, disease, and the murder of La Salle by one of his men destroyed the colony. Still, this French venture allowed, alarmed the Spanish enough to draw them into Texas. Later ventures in Louisiana lasted longer. In 1686, Canadian traders noted the strategic value of the place where the Arkansas River meets the Mississippi and founded Arkansas Post. Over the next two decades, the French founded settlements along the coast of what is now Mississippi and Alabama and at the junction of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. The French had the European contest for power on their minds. One of these settlements was Nashatoshis, 
founded in northwestern Louisiana in 1716, around the time Spain began its second settlement of Texas in order to keep the Spanish at bay. Gobbling up land before the English could get it also motivated French settlement in the region. Early Louisiana languished. Distracted by the War of the Spanish Succession, which lasted from 1702 to 1713, France made little effort to build up Louisiana. By 1708, its population of slaves, soldiers, and habitants was a mere 279. In 1717, France privatized the colony by turning over management to the Company of the Indies. The next year, the French in Louisiana founded New Orleans. For decades, most Louisianians congregated in and around this city. The company's leaders could commiserate with those who tried to promote Canada, but often for different environmental reasons. Steamy air and swampy terrain made settlers susceptible to dysentery or malaria. The jungle-like landscape was hard to clear for farming. Disastrous weather often afflicted the region. The Mississippi flooded many times, and sometimes hurricanes blasted the settlers. Despite the prevailing mugginess, the region even suffered a few droughts, one reason early settlers often faced food shortages. Few French wanted to go. Much of the early population was soldiers and convicts, including thieves, prostitutes, and political prisoners. Many who came to Louisiana soon died or hightailed it to Florida. The company tried to solve the problem by subsidizing the coming of 5,400 Europeans, mostly French, but also including 1,300 Catholic Germans and 6,000 African slaves. Slaves farmed, ferried goods, and built canals and levees. But the company's subsidies also failed to yield impressive gains. Throughout the 18th century, Louisiana failed to develop profitable staple crops of rice and tobacco. By 1731, Louisiana was home to just 2,000 Europeans and 4,000 Africans. That year, the French government took back direct control. Louisiana made a lot of enemies. Although they could be skillful Indian diplomats, the French often chose conflict with Indians because they found it to be more in their interest than a peaceful policy. The French indicated what they thought of the small tribes living along the Gulf Coast in Mississippi near French settlements by calling them Petite Nations. By the time of Louisiana's founding, these unfortunate people had already suffered major losses to European disease and English and Spanish slave raiders. When Louisiana was in its infancy, the French traded with them for food. But once Louisiana got stronger, the French turned on them, enslaving many and selling them to the West Indies and taking most of their land. Disease, abuse of the alcohol sold to them by Europeans, and war reduced these people from 24,000 in 1685 to 4,000 by 1730. The survivors got by through trade and working with the French. Louisiana offered colonists no more freedom than New France. All offices were appointed, not elected, the governor commanded the military and oversaw Indian diplomacy. A commissary supplied the troops. Colonists could serve on the Superior Council, a body that advised the leaders and acted as the Supreme Court, but they did not get to decide who received those positions. Officials were corrupt. They invested in piracy, traded with the Spanish when regulations said not to, embezzled government funds, and used government ships and workers for personal gain. In addition to being free from voters' restraint, 
distance protected them from French officials' oversight. Like Canada, Louisiana was a hierarchical regime, but with the addition of racial repression to the class structure. In 1724, France imposed additional regulations on Africans in the form of the Louisiana version of the Code Noir, meaning Black Code, regulations shaped by officials and Catholic clergy. The Code Noir made it more difficult to set slaves free, imposed harsher penalties for breaking the law on blacks than whites, banned interracial marriage, forbade assemblies by slaves from multiple plantations, and allowed the flogging of slaves. In addition to these repressive elements, the code also protected blacks in certain ways. Owners were required to baptize their slaves, let them marry, and help the elderly and disabled. Owners were forbidden to break up families, make slaves work Sundays and church holidays, and kill or mutilate slaves. The code also protected many rights of free blacks, including the right to sue. In the mid-18th century, repression of Africans decreased somewhat, in 1729, Natchez Indians and slaves rose up against the French. In the aftermath, the French made reforms. Officials banned almost all slave imports. Once it became more difficult to acquire more slaves, owners made further reforms to placate and reproduce their slaves. They reduced workloads, gave slaves homes of their own, and allowed slaves to work for themselves in their spare time by, for example, raising and selling garden crops. They also reduced the workloads of pregnant women and encouraged marriage. Reforms succeeded at raising marriage and birth rates among Louisiana's enslaved population. Louisiana's failure to profit from staple crops also improved the lot of the slaves. In the mid-18th century, planters responded by increasing their investments in wood products and cattle. Slaves employed in these domains were more likely to be able to work a variety of tasks than those who raised staple crops. Their work included blacksmithing, construction, caring for livestock, hunting, trapping, and making barrels, shingles, pitch, and tar. These tasks allowed them various freedoms, reduced supervision, access to horses, more mobility, and the use of guns and other weapons, something banned by the Code Noir. Wood and livestock were not as profitable as staple crops, so many planters tried to save money by pressuring slaves to meet more of their own needs, which would reduce the burden of the Code Noir's demand that they care for their human property. The benefit for slaves was that planters tried to give them a chance at success by providing more travel opportunities and free time. Once they got a taste of time to themselves, many slaves pressed for more. By the mid-18th century, in addition to Sundays, some slaves had Saturdays and a quarter of the weekday workday free. None of these changes eliminated the inherently repressive nature of slavery. Slaves were owned by another, and French law made it difficult to free them. For bondage to be broken, the owner had to initiate the process and the superior counsel had to approve. Elites also tried to dominate lower-class whites, who were closer to slaves and farther below the aristocracy than in Britain's colonial hierarchy. Only the lower classes were subjected to brutal methods of execution. Slaves were punished more harshly for violence against officials and plantation owners than against low-ranking soldiers. Soldiers were badly paid. They made only a quarter of what Spanish soldiers made, 
officers often took for themselves money, supplies, and clothing that should have gone to their men. The nightmare of the Louisiana elite was that Africans, lower-class whites, and embittered survivors of the petite nations, all groups with an interest in upsetting the repressive order, might someday conclude they were all in the same boat and jointly rise up. To do that, officials tried to keep the population divided. They allowed blacks to serve in the militia, which provided Indian defense and took action to keep the slaves down, which included capturing runaways. They employed Indians to punish slave rebellions. Officials used Indians and Africans to catch deserting soldiers and employed Africans to flog unruly soldiers. Louisiana remained a starkly unequal society, but it did become more livable. By the 1740s, colonists' immune systems learned to handle endemic disease, and colonists improved at farming, ending the food shortages. But making a living in Louisiana remained difficult. Outside its stock and wood industries and struggling plantations, Louisiana relied mainly on trading for deer skins harvested by the Indians. Its economy was further tied down by high shipping costs. Goods from Louisiana had to travel farther to reach Europe than goods from the Atlantic coast, and ships were more likely to be assaulted by hurricanes and pirates. Across the eastern half of North America, founding settlements and traversing the continent brought the French into contact with people from a wide array of different backgrounds. They competed for power with other Europeans. In addition to the Spanish in the southwest and along the Gulf Coast, the English were founding colonies along the Atlantic coast. In 1670, King Charles II chartered the Hudson's Bay Company, which traded with Indians from north of New France. Fueling the competition was that France and England were often at war elsewhere in the 17th and 18th centuries. There were also Dutch in what is now New York, a place the Dutch called New Netherland. And, of course, the French were moving into territory full of Indian tribes, each of which had its own interests. Among them was the Iroquois, who lived in what is now western and upstate New York. The Iroquois are also known as the Five Nations or the Iroquois Confederacy because they comprised five tribes, the Mohawks, Oneidas, Onondagas, Cayugas, and Senecas. They lived in fortified towns where women grew maize, beans, and squash. This arrangement gave the Confederacy great military reach. Because men were free from meeting their tribe's basic needs, they could travel long distances to fight. Tribes that relied more heavily on men's hunting and gathering could not withstand men's absences on long military campaigns. One motivation for the Iroquois and other northeastern Indians to fight was waging what historians call mourning wars. This form of violence allowed tribes to resolve the spiritual and practical problems of death. Death not only grieved those left behind, but endangered them by weakening their tribe and threatening them with the vengeful return of the spirits of the dead. These problems could in part be dealt with by an unrestrained display of emotion from the female relatives of the recently deceased, but even more effective was a ritual involving a feast and the giving of gifts to the grieving. No gift resolved death better than people captured in mourning war. Chiefs gave them to elderly women who had recently suffered a death. These matriarchs responded a variety of ways to the gift of captives. They could order them adopted into the tribe. Women and children usually met this fate 
because they were easier to assimilate than men. Iroquois even turned those adopted into the deceased by giving them the name of the person they were replacing. Or the matriarch could order captives killed in extremely painful ways, such as poking them with red-hot iron. The majority who met this fate were men. The proper way for a victim killed this way to meet his end was to expire bringing glory to himself and his people by mocking his killers and boasting of his exploits as a warrior. When the victim's ordeal was over, women would cook him and the band would feast on him to take his spiritual power. The grisly ritual promoted friendship towards one's own band and hatred for enemies and toughened boys. In the 15th century, the Iroquois developed another advantage over their neighbors by forming the Great League of Peace and Power. The unity provided by this organization stopped the mourning wars among the Iroquois. In the 16th century, the Iroquois added to their unity by forming the Iroquois Confederacy, which would carry out diplomacy with Indians and Europeans. By 1600, the Iroquois numbered 22,000 people who could be coordinated. They still needed war to respond to death, take revenge, and train the young men. But now that they only directed their destructive power outward, their enemies felt their wrath more than before. The Iroquois especially hoped to take fellow speakers of Iroquoian, including the French trading partners, the Hurons, because such people picked up the language and culture of the five nations faster once adopted. The southeast was peopled by powerful tribes including the Catawbas, Cherokees, Creeks, Choctaws, and Chickasaws. They adapted to their warm environment by building winter houses of clay held up by a cane framework and roofed with grass and summer homes that rested on stilts, allowing air to circulate underneath. Men hunted deer and buffalo for their livelihood and played lacrosse and a spear-throwing game called Chunky for recreation. Women grew maize, beans, squash, and pumpkins. Like Northeastern Indians, these tribes often tortured male captives to death. Needing security for their colonies and hoping to achieve goals well beyond farming, goals that required interaction with others, the French needed a way to force or entice all these different nations to do their will. The French included people who devoted their lives to religious ministry, France was a predominantly Roman Catholic country, and Catholic priests and members of religious orders, both male and female, streamed to the French colonies. Nuns educated Indian and French girls and served the poor and sick. Men in holy orders served as priests to French settlers, spread the gospel to Indians, and even acted as explorers. A member of the Recalé order was the first European to see Niagara Falls. The religious views of the missionaries and those to whom they ministered differed significantly. The missionaries believed that the reign of the Christian God extended to all people, while Indians believed that each group answered to its own God. They were annoyed by French claims that they followed a false religion. Christian missionaries taught that heaven or hell were very different from the present life, while Indians believed the afterlife did not differ much from the present. Some Indians were put off by the Jesuit teaching that Christians must marry inside the faith, fearing that it crimped the marriage market too much. Others did not find going to heaven appealing because, according to Christian theology, their unbelieving relatives would not be there. 
The majority of French missionaries to the Indians came from the Jesuits, also known as the Society of Jesus, an order founded in the mid-16th century by Ignatius Loyola. They began their efforts in New France in 1611. France's observation of the Spanish model aroused hope that Christianizing the Indians could help the French to control their empire despite its small population. And so, in addition to acting from Christian conviction, the Jesuits imposed French power, thus playing a similar role in the French colonies as the Franciscans played in the Spanish colonies. Like the Spanish government, the French government sponsored their efforts among the Indians. One way the Jesuits gained access to the Hurons was the requirement, made in 1634 by the governor of New France, Samuel de Champlain, that they accept Jesuit missionaries if they were to have access to French trade. The majority of Hurons went along. Beginning in 1632 and continuing for the next four decades, reports written by Jesuits in America were published in France as the Jesuit Relations. The Relations provided information about Indian culture, what they ate, their religious beliefs, and their hunting practices. They also discussed the adventures and obstacles that Jesuits faced. Paul Lejeune wrote about spending a winter among the Montagnais Indians. He spent most of his time indoors because cold, wind, and snow made the outdoors uncomfortable, and it was easy to get lost in the surrounding woods. Indoors was barely more pleasant. He was sometimes too hot, other times too cold, and pestered by dogs. He also hated the smoke. He wrote, It almost killed me. It caused us to place our mouths against the earth in order to breathe. How bitter is this drink? How strong its odor? How hurtful to the eyes are its fumes? I sometimes thought I was going blind. My eyes burned like fire. Although they related unpleasant and even horrifying details, these stories burnished the image of the French Empire, the Catholic Church, and the Jesuits. Reading the relations convinced many young men to become Jesuit missionaries. Jesuits ranged throughout the French Empire. In the 17th century, they went to the Hurons and the Iroquois. Their ministry spread to the Midwest. By 1667, they were working near Green Bay in what is now Wisconsin. And by the early 18th century, they founded a mission at Cascasia in what is now far southwest Illinois. The Jesuits showed great zeal. They thought their work mattered. Living in a time of intense conflict between Protestant and Catholic Christians, they hoped to win the world for Catholicism. They also believed bringing the gospel to Indians could save them from hell. And they believed their work affected their own fate, that suffering and even martyrdom increased their chances of finding eternal salvation or winning particular honor in the next life. For these reasons, they were willing to endure extreme pain for their faith. Isaac Jogues, a minister, missionary to the Hurons, was captured by the Iroquois. They bit off all his fingers. He escaped and returned to the Hurons until the Iroquois captured him a second time and executed him in 1646. Jean Brebeuf, another missionary to the Hurons captured by the Iroquois, endured being seared with fire and doused with boiling water as he died, according to the Jesuit relations. The report stated that he tried to win his killers for Christ rather than acting for his, asking for his captors to stop his torture, and that after he expired, his captors ate his heart in hopes that they could thereby obtain his bravery. 
The unfortunate tale of Father Nicolas Foucault exemplifies the difficulties missionaries had in reaching Indians and Indians had in enduring missionaries. Born in Paris in 1664, Foucault trained for the priesthood at the Seminaire des Missions Etrangères, then moved to New France in 1688. Ordained as a priest a year later, he served a decade in Batiscon, about 50 miles southwest of Quebec. In this position, he proved himself to be a hard-working stickler who enjoyed the finer things in life. When he didn't get his way, he relied on higher authorities to back him up. He kept a large home and made sure the church had well-cleaned linens, French-made windows, and the finest chalices. Soldiers were prone to singing lewd songs and other debauchery. Foucault tried to restrain them, and the soldiers responded by acting up even more. Eventually, Foucault sought a new position as a missionary in the Mississippi Valley. In 1701, he headed south to what is now Arkansas to minister to the Quapaws who had requested a mission. Such a request did not necessarily imply interest in things above. Missions could also mean trade or access to spiritual power. Foucault's temperament was dreadfully unsuitable for winning these people to Christianity. They often went naked. Some were burdashes, cross-dressing men. Their religious ceremonies featured dancing and nudity. They were sexually unrestrained. Foucault was far from superiors who could back him up or even other missionaries who could give him counsel or encouragement. Even if Foucault won over some chiefs, it would not help much because Quapaw society did not give chiefs authority to determine their people's religion. Foucault had great wealth, including sacred objects of Catholic worship, which the Quapaws much admired. But Foucault could make nothing of these things because his personal and cultural inclination was to cling to private property, while the Quapaws valued gift-giving. The fastidious priest made few converts. After a year with them, he departed to seek a fresh start among the Chickasaws. With him were two soldiers and a valet. Two Koroa Indians paddled them down the Arkansas River, then quickly turned on them and murdered them all, either doing the bidding of the English or greedy for Foucault's riches, which they plundered. Perhaps the only sign he made any impression on the Quapaws was that a few years later they took a bloody revenge on the Koroa, suggesting that they had seen Foucault as a family member. Fortunately for the fate of Catholicism in America, many missionaries were not like Father Foucault. True, missionaries often saw themselves as superior to the people they served and taught things that Indians found unpalatable, but many were skilled at adapting their ministry to the Indians. One reason they did this was their limited power to coerce Indians. They learned to speak Indian languages and use their culture. They allowed Indian converts to keep their old culture and to leave the missions to hunt animals for meat and furs. They also allowed Indian law rather than French law to establish the procedure if an Indian murdered a French person. Catholic missionaries had moderate success. They converted many Indians, but Indians were not always drawn by the heart of the Christian message. Many were drawn to consider Christianity because they believed that the ritual of the Mass or the use of crucifixes, rosaries, or objects bearing some connection to a saint could exercise spiritual power that would allow them to solve earthly problems. Their success was concentrated in the St. Lawrence River Valley of Canada. There, the majority of Indians eventually lived on missions. Another of the missionaries' successes, at least in the diplomatic realm, 
was the Abenakis, who lived in what is now Maine. In the 1720s, French missionaries forged strong links with these people. The Abenakis responded by repeatedly raiding Massachusetts. The outcome at Conawake, an Iroquois village near Montreal, suggests how successful French missionaries could be at winning over Indians, but also the limits of their influence. Indians at Conawake tended to be people who converted voluntarily, not under coercion, and when they converted, they adopted an Iroquois perspective rather than passively accepting Catholicism as it was taught to them. Some converts at Conawake sought spiritual power. One way of getting it was continuing to turn to traditional religion. Another was to take up spiritual practices they knew to be used only by priests and nuns. They included some of the women at Conawake. These women sought spiritual growth through a combination of European and native practices. Like European members of religious orders, they voluntarily lived in poverty, delivered sermons to one another, mutually confessed their sins, and cared for the poor and sick. They also prayed corporately, refrained from sexual intercourse, and practiced physical asceticism, practices with both European and Iroquois roots. They derived their means of self-torture from what they learned of nuns elsewhere in Canada, from Jesuits at Conawake, and from their own traditional practices, possibly including means of preparing for war. Fasting had both European and Iroquois roots. Flogging themselves or others, hair shirts, and iron girdles that caused skin irritation were European techniques of asceticism. Burning themselves was an Iroquois practice. So was exposing themselves to extreme cold. In the dead of winter, they would get into some water outdoors and pray, as a Jesuit put it, the rosary slowly and deliberately. Perhaps the most committed of all these women was Catherine Takakwitha. She helped to lead a group of ascetic women. Her practices included sleep denial, putting ashes in her food on Wednesdays and Fridays, walking barefoot in the snow, holding a glowing coal between her toes for the duration of an Ave Maria prayer, and sleeping on thorns. The motivation of these women also showed a combination of influences. Seeking to gain toughness was Iroquois. Like Europeans, they also hoped these deeds would demonstrate their spiritual prowess and allow them power over men in the church. These women not only pried into secret practices, but often defied the Jesuits when they tried to get them to tone down their asceticism. Seeking to experience God and gain spiritual power was both European and Iroquois. Like Europeans, they also hoped that asceticism would pay for sin, but... Like Iroquois, they tended to see sins as the wrongdoing of their people rather than individual failures. Missionaries in Conawake did not achieve long-term Christianization. Conflict between Indians and colonists limited their influence, as did the high death toll from disease. Many converts lived short lives. One of them was Takakwitha, who died in 1680 at the age of only 24. Permanent damage from smallpox and her extreme practices helped to bring on her early death. She was beatified by the Catholic Church in 1980. Fur traders also carried French influence. Knowing that French settlers were too few to overwhelm the Indians, they ingratiated themselves with the Indians. They spoke Indian languages and refrained from acting as if they were superiors to the Indians. 
They would even go to war to please their trading partners, the Hurons and Algonquins from just north of Lake Ontario and the Montagnais from just north of the mouth of the St. Lawrence River. In 1609 and 1610, they helped their partners fight two battles against the Iroquois. These battles demonstrated the power of a good that became popular among Indians, guns. The French won those battles because they could train their guns on people who could not respond in kind. The Iroquois responded by attacking the trading partners of the French to cut off their supply of guns and take the guns they did have for themselves. What the French called coureurs de bois carried out much of the fur trade and proved particularly successful diplomats. These were people who went to Indian villages to trade. Doing this allowed them to acquire furs directly from the Indians who harvested them rather than pay higher prices charged by Indian middlemen. Doing this required them to sneak past French officials who wanted to confine trade to posts where they could determine who received a license to trade. One way French and Indians accommodated one another was intermarriage between coureurs de bois and Indian women. French traders were far more likely to participate in this practice than traders from other European countries. Intermarriage offered coureurs de bois financial opportunity and safety. An Indian wife could help a French trader learn Indian culture and build relationships that could lead to deals. Indians sometimes killed traders to rob them, take revenge, rub out a threat, or prevent weapons dealing in their village. They also killed traders in drunken fits. But traders who were married to Indian women were less likely to meet a violent end. The children of French Indian marriages were called Métis. Their mixed parentage allowed them to learn an Indian language and French and deeply understand both French and Indian culture. Thus equipped, they often took after their parents and acted as cultural go-betweens. By 1680, there were at least 800 coureurs de bois, at a time when French authorities were licensing only a small fraction as many traders. French authorities' attempt to restrict them was a mistake. Their journeys actually increased the reach of French power. Recognizing this, French officials fearful of English expansion prodded Louis XIV into changing French policy, in 1700, the crown began allowing traders to work wherever they wished. Coureur de bois became a cornerstone of French strategy. French settlement, trade, and missionary work were all part of a struggle for power among Indian and European states. Europeans and Indians developed trading partnerships with favored counterparts. By the 1620s, the top trade partner of the French was the Hurons, in those years, the Hurons were the source of 10,000 to 12,000 pelts per year, two-thirds of the furs the French acquired in North America. The Hurons were farmers who acquired most of the furs they provided to the French through trade. They kept some of the manufactured goods they acquired from the French and traded others to their neighbors at a good profit. In 1609, the Iroquois became trade partners with the Dutch, who dramatically enhanced Iroquois power by offering them guns and metal weapons at a time when most Indians had nothing more than bows and arrows. Once they were better armed, the Iroquois began to raid more often. Trading with the French and other Europeans allowed Indians access to goods they had never been able to obtain before, but it also weakened them. Once European goods entered an area, Indians found that they became necessary for survival. 
Guns provided Indians with greater range in battle. When one tribe developed a source of guns and ammunition, neighboring tribes faced a future of defeat unless they could find their own source of firearms. Furthermore, after a few decades, Indians who traded with Europeans got used to their guns and metal tools and weapons. Observing the effects of trade, a British official commented, What was only conveniency at first is now become necessity. Farming without metal tools and making tools and weapons of stone became forgotten skills. In that desperate situation, Indians sometimes used force to get Europeans to trade with them. Driven to hunt more by hunger for European goods, Indians began to exhaust local beaver populations. Worse, interactions with traders and other Europeans sowed disease among Indians that caused their numbers to decline dramatically. Trade between Europeans and Indians made intertribal warfare even more destructive. Mounting disease deaths demanded mourning war, and tribes began to fight more often so that they could take more territory to harvest furs for trade. Winning wars thereafter meant more trade revenue, which meant more guns and more power. Without guns, Indians often struck with bows and arrows and fended off enemy missiles with wooden shields and armor. Unafraid of these weapons' limited lethality, they bunched together to fight. Tribes that had made contact with Europeans were able to do more damage because trade provided them with guns and metal weapons. Guns were so lethal that many Indians responded with new tactics. They struck by surprise, tried to avoid lengthy battles, and used trees for shelter. In the Northeast, the volatile new mixture of European and Indian nations blew up. The Iroquois began making war even more frequently in the early 17th century. They sought compensation for the increasing death toll of war and disease. They hoped to replace losses with captives and take revenge on the Hurons, whose witchcraft they blamed for their misfortunes. The Iroquois also wanted to keep other tribes, who often had higher quality furs to offer than they did, away from the Dutch. The French also fueled these wars. If their trading partners made peace with the Iroquois, they would be free to trade with the Dutch, whose less expensive, higher quality, more abundant goods made them more appealing trading partners than the French. Increased aggression inspired even more aggression. More frequent war led to more military casualties and drew revenge raids that cost the Iroquois. The Iroquois responded to these losses with wars of revenge. Then affairs got even worse. Between 1633 and 1641, a smallpox and measles outbreak created an unprecedented need for mourning war by killing half the Iroquois. In 1642, the Iroquois unleashed a sustained assault on their neighbors and the Jesuits who ministered to them in what is now Michigan and Ohio and north of Lakes Huron and Erie. These attacks went on for more than a decade and shockingly reduced the population of the Iroquois neighbors. The Iroquois killed and captured the majority of some tribes, including the Hurons. In part, these were mourning wars, but they were also about trade. Iroquois wanted to sever the Hurons and other Great Lakes Indians from the French, allowing them to claim the French trade for themselves, and winning a trade partner in addition to the Dutch, 
which would force the Dutch to bid higher for their furs. The Iroquois also sought to increase their hunting grounds and punish the Hurons for refusing to join their confederacy. In the 1650s and 1660s, the French stabilized matters a little by making treaties with the Iroquois. They would begin to trade with the Iroquois, but in exchange the Iroquois would allow Jesuit missionaries to live with them. Part of the reason the Iroquois were willing to rein in their aggression was the damage they had done themselves with all these wars. They also lost their source of guns, New Netherland, when England conquered the colony in 1664. Still, even after the treaties, the Iroquois continued to strike the upper country frequently, and matters soon deteriorated again. In the late 1670s, the Iroquois replaced the Dutch as trade partners and gun dealers by turning to the English. The English goaded the Iroquois to become more aggressive. In, 16, in the 1680s, Iroquois attacks on Indians located around the Great Lakes picked up once again. They tried to force these tribes to trade with them, not France. Meanwhile, the onslaught in the 1640s and 1650s sent masses of refugees fleeing into what is now northern Illinois, eastern Wisconsin, and the upper peninsula of Michigan. The surge in the population overtaxed fishing and hunting, leading to food shortages, which made Indians even more vulnerable to novel European diseases. In the late 17th and early 18th centuries, the tribes of this region lost 25 to 90 percent of their populations to disease. Indians in the region began to have more frequent contact with people of different tribes, often enemies. All this stress led to a rise in violent conflict. Iroquois aggression heightened French ambitions in the upper country. The Iroquois onslaught caused France to suffer a shortage of furs. They wanted trade partners and Indian allies to ward off the Iroquois. In the 1650s, they started trading and doing missionary work in the area to which the refugees had fled. Achieving their goals meant cleaving a thicket of obstacles. France had neither a large military presence nor many settlers in the upper country. The French had about as much power in the region as the Indians whose cooperation they needed. But the Indians had problems too. They needed European goods, especially guns, and they needed a mediator to bring an end to intertribal warfare. Working against opportunities to serve each other were deep cultural rifts between the French and the region's Indians. The French saw the Indians as morally unrestrained, while the Indians saw the French as Manitous, non-human beings of great power. French fur traders, military officers, and missionaries, and the tribes in the refugee region recognized that they both had needs only the other could meet, and that neither group was in any position to dictate to the other, so each side made concessions. In the late 17th century, they created what historian Richard White has called a middle ground, in which each side modified its culture to allow a relationship both sides sought. On the middle ground, the two parties framed the relationship as an encounter between French fathers and Indian children. Although each side interpreted what this meant differently, agreement on framing the relationship this way nevertheless brought the two sides together. To the French, fatherhood meant authority. In northeastern Indian culture, mothers and uncles led families. 
relating to a father therefore meant freedom to act while still receiving protection and care. The Indians modified their practices by allowing the French to hold captive an Indian who had committed a murder until the issue was resolved. While the French preferred to execute murderers, they adopted the Indian practice of making restitution for killings instead. This cultural adaptation was apparent in a 1723 incident in which a Frenchman was murdered by another Frenchman who was well-liked by many Indians. Recently, several Indian warriors had been killed fighting enemies of the French. Their lives had not yet been avenged. Instead of avenging their deaths, Indians offered these warriors' lives as compensation for the murder. The French accepted it and let the murderer go free. The French reconciled tribes to one another by giving gifts to those who suffered the murder of a family member, thus removing any motivation for revenge. This culturally hybridized way of responding to killings not only pulled the tribes of the upper country together, but also turned them against the enemy they shared with the French, for the family of the murderer whose act had been atoned for was obligated to respond by fighting the Iroquois. To create the middle ground, the French also used gift-giving in other ways. They gave gifts to convince Indians to take particular action, and they gave gifts in a way that made sense to the Indians. If they wanted to influence a whole village, they gave gifts to all the heads of families in the village so that these chiefs could carry out their role by distributing the gifts. The middle ground allowed the French and tribes of the Great Lakes region to build a mutually beneficial relationship. The friendship the French and the majority of these tribes formed in the late 17th century was long-lasting. France was able to buy furs cheaply from its new allies. The Allies went to war with the Iroquois in the 1690s, and by 1701, they evicted the Iroquois from much of the region. The middle ground spread as the Iroquois pulled back. In addition to the French-Indian alliance, the Iroquois found that incorporating masses of captives had depleted tribal unity. They remained a power in the face of these challenges by reorienting their diplomacy. In 1701, the Iroquois made peace with the Great Lakes tribes and made the Grand Settlement with France and England. They agreed to neutrality from then on. Shrewd use of their diplomatic stance and their location along the New York-Canada border allowed them to manipulate both the British and the French. They charged high prices for their furs because traders of two nations had to compete for them and they wrung gifts from both nations by suggesting that they might otherwise befriend the enemy. They also befriended the Indians around the Great Lakes by redirecting their mourning wars and attempts to give their young men military experience to southern tribes. This move allowed them to enhance their power by acting as middlemen and diplomats between northeastern tribes and the English. And they enhanced their power even more by adding the Tuscaroras of North Carolina to their confederacy, thereby becoming the Six Nations. Peace caused the French new challenges. Many of the tribes who had been terrorized by the Iroquois returned to their old homeland southeast of the lakes and north of the Ohio River. There they had more contact with the Iroquois and with British traders, each of whom tried to divert them from trading with the French. Satisfied with victory, the French cut back on gifts and other features of Indian diplomacy. As a result, their allies began to turn on one another and on French traders. 
French traders impinged on the Spanish in the west and southeast. By the late 17th century, they often traded in the Great Plains, doing more business than the Spanish in the region. They offered guns to the Indians. Indians used them to launch more damaging attacks on Spanish settlements, and Indians allied with the Spanish and to keep the Spanish hemmed in. Guns acquired directly from the French or through middlemen particularly strengthened the Comanches, Pawnees, and Wichitas. In 1720, Pedro de Villasur, lieutenant governor of New Mexico, led an army of 105 New Mexicans and Pueblos into the plains to drive out the French. In what is now southeast Nebraska, the expedition came to a bad end. French traders and Pawnee and Oto allies killed 43 of them, including Viasur. The disaster suggested the magnitude of French potency in the region. Traders in Louisiana also won Indian trade and loyalty, and even Spanish settler trade that otherwise might have gone to Spain. Many Indians in Texas shrugged off Spanish attempts to convert them to Christianity because trade and protection from the French made whatever the Franciscans could offer seem unnecessary. To win the Southeast, the British and French competed for Indian allies. Although the French oppressed the Indians near its areas of densest settlement, in the majority of Louisiana, the French were so few in number that Indians could destroy them any time they chose. In these areas and elsewhere in the region, the French and British sought Indian allies by offering goods through trade and even as gifts. The British had the edge as traders. Their goods were higher quality, more abundant, and cheaper. One reason for the cheapness of British goods was that their bases were along the Atlantic coast, places that were less perilous and less expensive to reach than Louisiana. British alcohol was less expensive because France outlawed the manufacture of rum to help domestic brandy makers, while British settlers in the Caribbean manufactured it just a few hundred miles from the southeast. The French compensated for their commercial weakness with diplomacy. They treated the Indians better than the British. They showed Indians honor and friendliness and showered them with gifts, including food. At first, the French strategy was to try to win all southern Indians to their side and repeat the feat they had achieved in the upper country. For example, they tried to play the role of unifiers with the Chickasaws and Choctaws, tribes that shared a language and culture but turned on each other in the mid-17th century. The Chickasaws enslaved Choctaws, then traded them to the English for guns. In 1702, the French made peace between these tribes by offering both access to trade goods in exchange for deerskins and showering them with gifts. But the French soon found that they lacked the funds to be friends with everyone. As a result, they chose certain tribes to favor with gifts. They did not invest heavily in building a friendship with the Catawbas and Cherokees because they were located well to the east, too close to the British settlements. They did get close to the Creeks, and especially the Choctaws. Hoping they would smite British traders and capture runaway slaves and deserting soldiers, the French offered goods worth twice as much as the deerskins the Choctaws traded to them. They broke the peace between the Choctaws and Chickasaws. Closer to the bulk of the French settlers and four times as populous as the Chickasaws, the Choctaws seemed like more valuable allies. 
1721, the French began buying enslaved Chickasaws and even Chickasaw scalps from the Choctaws. A scalp cost one gun, one pound of gunpowder, and two pounds of bullets. The Chickasaws resisted. The French responded in the late 1730s by deploying soldiers and enslaved Africans and working with the Choctaws to try to annihilate the Chickasaws, but the Chickasaws held on. Some Choctaws decided alliance with France and messed them in too much warfare. In 1746, they tried to break free by killing three French and beginning to trade with the British. The French paid other Choctaws to kill 233 of the breakaways and three English traders, quelling the attempt to pull away from the French. At first, the French pulled ahead in the conflict over the southeast. They won the majority of Indians to their side, including the Yamasees, who attacked the English in the Carolinas. But in the 1720s and 1730s, the English pulled ahead through gift-giving, their goods quality and cheapness, and defeating the Yamasee in a war. Meanwhile, France and Britain clashed to control the border between Canada and England's northeastern colonies. In the 1720s, hoping to dominate trade with the Iroquois, the two sides built forts in what is now upstate New York, the French Fort Niagara and the English Fort Oswego, less than 150 miles east. In 1731, the French built Fort Crown Point in what is now northern New York. The English colony of Massachusetts retaliated by building two forts. France and Britain also jostled for control of the Ohio country. The Ohio River watershed inside present-day West Virginia, Kentucky, western Pennsylvania, and eastern Ohio. By the early 1730s, France's forts allowed it to dominate the western end of the valley. Meanwhile, British traders based in Pennsylvania did the majority of the trade in the eastern end of the valley. During King George's War, a European conflict that lasted from 1744 to 1748 in which France and England were on different sides, a British blockade of North America reduced the number of goods reaching French traders. At the same time, the Iroquois were moving closer to the British and away from neutrality. Pennsylvanians took advantage and won the majority of the trade in what is now Ohio and Indiana by 1748 but the traders often cheated the Indians, and Britain failed to place a fort in the region to protect friendly tribes. The French and their allies took advantage by striking a brutal blow to take the region back for France. In 1752, French traders and Chippewa and Ottawa Indians destroyed an English trading post at Pickawillany, Ohio, and ate the heart of one of the traders there, as well as the Indian chief in charge there. Displeased by British policies and impressed by this show of force, the Shawnees, Miamis, and Hurons swung to the French side. By the mid-18th century, the future of much of eastern North America hung in the balance. The French built formidable power, but their failures meant that New France and Louisiana depended on maintaining the goodwill of Indians, meaning they rested on unstable ground. The future of the French holdings was clouded because the French fell far behind in the population race. By 1700, the English already had placed 265,000 Africans and Europeans in their 13 colonies along the Atlantic. Canada, by contrast, had a mere 15,000. By 1750, the population had surged, 
but to only 52,000, still far behind the mark the English had reached a half century earlier. French presence in the upper country was even slighter. By 1750, 300 soldiers and 2,000 settlers, missionaries, and fur traders were outnumbered by 80,000 Indians. Louisiana's population also remained stagnant. It rose from where it was under the Company of the Indies, but not by much. By 1746, Louisiana was home to 4,100 slaves, 3,300 free civilians, and 600 soldiers, 8,000 settlers in all. By 1760, it had inched up to 9,000. Development was not coming quickly along the Gulf Coast. The small French population both undermined and promoted French power. Lack of settlers limited French ability to overwhelm other European powers and the Indians. The French compensated for their small population by seeking influence through Indian alliances. Indians were willing to enter these alliances in part because the small French population did not use much land. By contrast, the larger English population demanded a great deal of land, resulting in worse relations with Indians. Hamstrung by a lack of settlers, the French fought the Indians less often and won more Indian allies than the English. France's inability to pack its American colonies with settlers or develop a particularly lucrative product meant that Indian presence and military garrisons cost France more than officials could wring out of the colonies in taxes. In the three decades after the French government took direct control of Louisiana, it spent 800,000 more livres on holding it than it made from the colony. But France held on to its colonies. Despite their costs, they did succeed at checking the settlers massing to the east and south in 13 British colonies. <laughs>